Last week, uh, if you weren't here, as we've been going through the book of Acts, last week we saw the religious leaders make a pretty tough decision. And they had this tough decision to make because, unfortunately, their whole plan about killing Jesus and wiping out all of his followers and everything that was going to happen, unfortunately for them, that didn't silence things. In fact, what happened is, instead of them just being dispersed and, and take off after they took Jesus out, in their mind. Instead, what happened is the church began to multiply. And what happened was these apostles, these followers of Jesus, these disciples that had been with Jesus and had followed after him and had uh, adopted his teachings, they began to teach and preach. And even now, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they began doing miraculous things, signs and wonders, similar to the way that Jesus had been doing things. Not only that, it's not like they moved somewhere across the country to be out of the way. No, they were doing it in the temple, right where all these religious leaders are leading, right? And, and this new movement has, has been gaining momentum on their doorstep. And so they, they call in the, the apostles and, and they listen to them and they command them not to teach. And then they have this big meeting that we looked at. And last week at this meeting, they're so angry. They're like, we've got to kill these guys. But because of the miracles and signs that have been happening lately, they realized, but we can't kill these guys. Because if we kill these guys, all the people are going to revolt and they're going to come in here and kill us. And that's not what we want. But we also know that because they're doing all this and they're gaining popularity and momentum and they've making this kind of, uh, this, this issue in front of us, if we don't get things under control then Rome, who has occupied Israel at the time, Rome is not going to be happy if we can't keep our Jewish people in control. Because that's part of the the deal that's going on here. We've got some authority given to us by Rome, but if things get out of control, then we're going to get removed, and we don't want that either. So they're really stuck. And a, a particular wise old man named Gamaliel, if you remember, he stood up to try to give some advice to the council. He's like, guys, I've been around a long time. I've seen a lot of things come and go. And let me just tell you, this very much could be like all these other times. And he mentions these other people like Thutis and these other people, right? He says, I remember way back when that this little group gathered up and there for a little while it really looked like they were going to be a big deal. And then he got killed and the whole thing wiped out over time. And then later, a few years later, this other thing happened and it all kind of raised up and this all happened and then it dissolved on its own. Why don't... We just see what happens. Instead of making any rash decisions right now and going and killing a whole bunch of people and maybe having to lock ourselves in our rooms that we're not getting killed, instead of all that, let's just see where this goes. And then the thing that I think actually won them over is the last thing he said was, because here's the problem. If this is a man, this, just, this is just this human thing that's coming up, it'll, it'll run itself, it'll run its course, and it'll dissolve. But if it's God... If God is behind this, then we're not going to be able to stop it anyway. So if those are our only two, cho- our only two choices, why don't we just kind of wait and see what happens? And surprisingly, these religious leaders, they said, all right, let's do that. Okay, and so that's what happened. God, as we know, was behind it, and nothing could stop it. But because it's growing so quickly, this movement, it's growing so quickly it's bound to have some growing pains. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 6 as we begin. All right? So let's start there in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And here's what it says. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, 
a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, if you're just reading this verse on your own with your devotions, and you're kind of new to the Bible, or you don't know a lot about the Bible, you'd read that verse and be like, what? Hellenists? Hebrews? Widows? Distributions? I don't understand any of this. All right, so I'm going to give you a little context and help you understand what's going on here. All right? There were two different groups of Jews in Jerusalem at this time. Okay? And, and they, were, they were cultural groups. All right? We have the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The difference here is the Hebrews were native to Jerusalem, Israel, and that area. And these were Jews that spoke mostly Aramaic, but worshipped in Hebrew. All right? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The, the Jews, the, the, the language of the Jews is Hebrew. Okay, all right? But in the whole region of Israel, um, even where Jesus was from, from Galilee into Samaria and, and down here in Judea where Jerusalem is, the most common natural language that they would speak in this area was all Aramaic. Okay? So you've got Aramaic speakers that worship in Hebrew. But then you have a group of people that are also Jews. Okay? They still worship the same way and all that. But these Jews were either um, transplants into the area. They had moved into the area from outer regions and countries and nations all over the place. But they were still Jews. But they spoke, they were the, who was called the Hellenists here, they spoke Greek. All right? So their most common language was Greek. And they worshipped in Greek. All right? So just like today, we would not have to go very far to find another Christian church that's probably speaking in and worshiping in a different language, right? <laughs> wouldn't be hard. Around here, it might be hard to find a Greek-speaking church, but it wouldn't be hard to find a Spanish-speaking church, right? That's what's going on, and that's what was happening in Jerusalem, all right? And, and this is before Jesus and be, before all of that, all right? So you would have synagogues within Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, that were both Greek-speaking synagogues and Aramaic Jewish Hebrew-speaking synagogues. They're both Jewish. Okay, do you see the difference here? You're getting that, right? They're all Jews, but they're culturally and, and even with language, they're a little bit different, okay? Now, that division between the two had existed in the Jewish synagogues, but it's been carried into the new church now, all right? And that's what's, that's what's happening here. In the Jewish communities, this is also important to know, there were people that were employed by the, the synagogue of the area to go each week and make a collection from both homes and businesses of various goods, food, clothing, money, donations from these areas to then take and distribute to the people in need that were part of that synagogue. All right? So what would happen is you'd have these people that were employed by the, the, the synagogue. They'd come through and they'd knock on people's doors. You know, they'd go to the baker and say, hey, do you have anything left over at the end of the day that you want to donate? And we'll pass it out to those who could use some food. Sure, here you go. You know, or they'd, they'd go to the, the, the market and they'd come along a goat farmer and like, hey, do you have any extra milk at the end of the day? Like, we'll take it and we'll pass it out. That way you don't have to carry it back to your village. Right? And so they'd gather these things each week, and then they'd pass it out to the people in need, especially the widows um, that were in the, part of that particular congregation. All right? Great. It's an awesome little like, uh, social service opportunity that's happening there. All right? The Christian church adopted the same system. 
Because all of these, these people that had been part of these various synagogues, this is now that they're becoming believers and now they're gathering together with the rest of the Christians, this is the only way they've all, ever functioned. This is the way they've always known it. And so they're like, yeah, let's, we'll continue to do that. Okay? So that's what's taking place. But apparently, whether it was due to language barriers or neighborhood proximities, because this is something else that has been as old as time. Have you ever been to specific um, neighborhoods that are, that are very um, culturally the same? Right? you got in Chinatown, in New York City. You've got these different areas of, hey, this is mostly like a Filipino area, Convoy Street, right? Or here you've got this is mostly, this neighborhood is all Spanish speakers, or this is all, you know, whatever. It's, it was the same way. It's still that way. In fact, Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem, they talk about here's the Jewish quarter and here's the Greek quarter and all these different areas. The neighborhoods were this way. So whether that was part of what was going on, it's like, man, you've got these, these people that have been raised in the, on the Hebrew side of town that only know those neighborhoods and they're supposed to pass it out. They get their stuff to pass out. And they're like, I don't know. I don't even know that neighborhood. How am I supposed to find these people? And we're not sure. But it could have been language barriers. It could have been neighborhood proximities. could have been prejudice. Or other factors, but either way, the Greek-speaking Hebrew widows, the Jewish widows, were getting overlooked. And that wasn't okay. And the church recognizes that. And so that comes to the, 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 the leadership of the, of the church at this point, the apostles, and they're like, this isn't right. We've got to do something about this. Why? Because the church is supposed to be, what? A beautiful blend of all cultures, all races, all backgrounds, um, all ages, all life experiences, that's the church. Heaven is going to be that way. If you hadn't noticed that, flip back to Revelation. I won't have you turn there today, but what does Revelation describe? It describes that very thing. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, worshiping God together. That's the way it's going to be, right? And, and so uh, here in this, um, we, we know that, that that's what is supposed to be. Uh, Paul describes it really well when he's describing the church and the way the church is supposed to be in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, there is one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. We are one in the family of faith. Amen? That's the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to be. All right? And so when this comes up here in, in verse 1, it's like this is not happening. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, they know it's not that, supposed to be that way. So they come up with a solution in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, even though they're recognizing this is an important thing. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. All right? Now, for a group of untrained leaders, this was some pretty wise organizational direction, as we're going to see. They called basically an all-church meeting and said, hey, here's the problem. We want to offer a solution here. But we want your input to help choose these seven men. And we're going to have them do this. Notice the qualifications there. We want them to be good, of good standing among the church, full of the Spirit, 
full of wisdom. That's it. These are the things that we want. And the apostles here, I think, recognized a really key leadership insight. If the church was to continue to grow, which Jesus told them it would, remember back in Acts 1.8, he says, you're going to be my witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea and Samaria then to the ends of the earth. This thing's going to grow. It's going to grow. But if it was to grow, it would be more than they could handle on their own. All right? And that's a, that was an important step for the, the apostles to understand. Let's not forget, these guys, these 12, well, at least 11 of them, right? Because remember, we lost Judas, and then they added Matthias back to the number of 12. But at least those first 11, they were the ones who had walked with Jesus. They were the ones who talked to him face to face for years as his disciples following after him. They were the ones that Jesus himself had trained and sent out. They were the ones that were in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell on them on the day of Pentecost and empowered them. They were the ones that have gone through all of this. But even they had human limitations. Even they knew there's no way we can continue to handle and minister and love and care for all the people that are going to be coming to faith. So because of that, there has to be an expansion. There has to be something that takes place to widen the the breadth of what we can possibly do. Because only God is limitless. Humans have human limitations. And this issue, even though it was a difficult issue... And it wasn't fun. This is, this is not as bad as like the Ananias and Sapphira episode that we saw a few weeks back. But this is still a bummer. Like so much of the early church that we think back to and look back to is like, oh, it's so wonderful. Everybody had all they needed. And people were getting not only saved everywhere, but they were getting healed. It was like fireworks time and exciting. And everybody would come to church all the time because who, who's going to get healed next? What's going to happen next? You know, there was all that. And it was just like, oh, this is wonderful. But then some of these things kind of bring it back down to earth. But the difficulty actually strengthened the church and expanding the ministry to empower these new disciples was the needed next step. And the church at large recognized it as well. Look at verse 5. It says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the new church recognized the wisdom. They chose the men. I also want you to notice that, you, you might not notice this, but I'll tell you, these seven names are actually Greek names. All right, And that's important because it gives us an indicator these probably were Hellenistic Christians. And remember the ones that were getting left out of the, of the mix, the distribution? They were the Hellenistic Greek-speaking Christians. And so I, I think that's, that's uh, significant because they were most likely Hellenists themselves. They knew the language. They knew the culture. They were the best equipped for this particular role. Now, the tasks that these seven were initially entrusted with were mostly practical jobs, right? We described it. 
You're the one who's supposed to go to the baker and get the bread and take it to the widows. You're the one who's supposed to go here across town and, and get some clothing and pass that out to the little kids that are orphans. You're the one who's supposed to, you know, do this and do that. Move this from that place to there. Go to that building and take it across town. It was practical stuff that they were doing. But that didn't minimize the spiritual nature of what they were doing. And we see that in the way that the apostles prayed for them and laid their hands on them. What were they doing? They were commissioning them to serve in Jesus' name. And I think that's important for us as Christians to see. Because at different times in your life, there will be different opportunities to serve and ways to serve that you will be well equipped for. But sometimes people are like, I don't, I want to do the spiritual stuff. Like, I want to do the stuff that really matters. Like, I want to be the one that's up in front of everybody else and preaching the gospel and whatever. Uh, Some of you are like, that's the last place I want to be. Just don't put me in front of people. Uh, But all I'm doing is I'm, you know, setting up chairs or I'm helping prepare the coffee in the morning or whatever. No. There is no, oh, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. What we're doing when we're serving people on behalf of Jesus is ministry. And the heart behind it and the motivation behind it matters. And so you could be setting up chairs for Jesus. And you are ministering from your heart and from what God's called you to do. And what you're doing is a spiritual work. It's a spiritual activity. Now you might be at home, you know, prepping coffee. And it may not be a spiritual thing. But you could come here and all of a sudden you're making the holy brew, right? Okay, so there's different things that are going on because of what you're being motivated to do in this thing. And that's important to recognize. And when they lay their hands on these men, it's symbolizing the extension of blessing that the apostles had received from Jesus. What they're doing there when they're doing that, they're like, Jesus laid his hands on us and told us to go and serve and minister. We're doing the same thing. And that's what we continue to to see happen as the church grows. Now, if you are a Christian, I've told you this before, you know this already, but if you're a Christian, you're already a part of the body of Christ. That's what happens. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, he adopts you into his family. And you're one of us. You are part of the family. Just like every other body part that you have in your body, that means you have a function. Because if you, have, if you are part of the body of Christ, you now have a function as a part of the body of Christ. Now here's the, here's the issue about that. Sometimes when people can't figure out kind of what body part they are, it gets a little awkward. And, but I want to encourage you and let you know, you are, if you're a Christian and you're part of this body, you have a function. All right? We can't all be gallbladders. That's what I mean by that. You may not know this, but you've got a thing in your body called a gallbladder. Most of you do. We probably have a few that have had them removed. Actually, I know a few of you that have had them removed, right? And here's the thing about a gallbladder. Most of the time, we're like, what is this thing even here for? What is this body part even for? I don't know. It just kind of sits there, takes up space, and sometimes gets inflamed and needs to be removed. Like, it's just kind of a problem. But here's the thing, guys. One or two of you might be called to be a gallbladder in this church. But probably the rest of you are not. You may not know what your particular part is and what your particular function is, but you can discover that. 
You can find out what that is. God wants to show you your part of how you can function and be an active part. God has a role for you to serve regularly. And the job of the leadership of a church is to to help you become a disciple of Jesus and equip you, as it says in Ephesians 4 also, to do the work of the ministry, to serve the church, to share your faith. That's the way this thing all goes. All right, now let's look at verse 7. This is actually the last verse we're going to look at here today. Verse 7, here's what it says. It gives us the outcome of what takes place. So they've done this. They've called the people together. They pick the seven guys. They lay their hands on them to send them out to do this work. And then it says in verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, there's two outcomes here that I want to call your attention to here in verse 7. First off, we see that the word increased. The word increased. How? How did that happen? Well, for one, what did this do? This is part of the verses ahead of this showed us. It allowed the apostles to focus on the specific duty that they had been given by Jesus. All right? Uh, They were eyewitnesses, meaning they saw it with their own eyes. They saw the life the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. They also heard with their own ears the teachings of Jesus. When they walked around with Jesus for those three years as he's ministering to other people and he's teaching the people and he's interacting with people that would come his way, they heard all that Jesus did. And so as they're hearing those things, absorbing those things, taking those things in, they are people that have been equipped by Jesus. And then what did Jesus tell them as he sent them out? He says, look, you're going to go, you're going to make disciples, you're going to baptize, you're going to teach, you're going to do these things, and you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to be the ones that are going to go out and you're going to tell people what happened with me. You're going to tell people about my life. You're going to tell people about my death. You're even going to tell people the crazy thought of my resurrection. And in that, I'm going to empower you to go and do those things. That's your call. That's what you're to do. And so when the the apostles here, they bring this up to the, the congregation, they're not saying, hey guys, we're too good for those other jobs that you have us to do. No, it's not that at all. It's what it is, is that there's an overpowering weight of, we know that we have to do this. And if we do anything else but this, it's actually taking away from what Jesus specifically told us we have to do. And that's burning in our souls. We have to be doing this. And so by allowing other people to now come in and share the load of ministry, it's allowing them to do that very thing. And the rest of their lives were devoted to telling as many people as possible about it. And not only that, As others matured into disciples, they began to share the word as well. And so not only did the word increase just from among the the 12 apostles, but now what we'll see, and we'll see it actually next week in chapter 7 with Stephen, um, we're going to see that these other, the next generation of disciples that have been raised up, they begin to preach. They begin to share the word. They've been taught by the apostles, and now they take it, and they're going to share it with others. As Acts continues, it's interesting But we will see that none of the 12 apostles took obvious 
leadership positions in the church in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? You've got this big organization that's really started from, you know, these guys preaching and teaching, and all these thousands of people come to it, but none of them actually end up leading administratively the church. In fact, the the person that shows up in Acts 15, we'll see him, um, maybe earlier before that too, but definitely in Acts 15, the one who's kind of leading the church of Jerusalem is not one of the twelve. It's actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. The twelve are like, we can't deal with that stuff. You work with the big groups of people and the crowds and and crowd control and getting people in their seats and all that stuff. We have to go preach. (laughs) That's what we're supposed to do. And tradition tells us that that's exactly what they did, that all 12 scattered throughout the world preaching until they died. So the word increased, and it increased in every direction. All right? So the second thing that we see here, not only did the word increase, but also the church increased. Now, look at that again, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. They'd already seen huge additions to their numbers. Because remember, when Acts started, there was 120 people gathered up in the upper room. 120 of them. But then, when the day of Pentecost fell, uh, when that all happened, the Holy Spirit fell, what happened? They began to preach and speak because of all this radical, supernatural stuff taking place. And 3,000 people become believers all at once. So they went from 120 to 3120, all right? And, and then shortly thereafter, they get other opportunities. Peter and John show up to, at the temple to pray. Remember that? They walk in, they heal the guy who's been lame since he, since he was a child. He's 40 years old. Everybody recognizes the guy. They heal him. He's walking, leaping, praising God, running through the temple. What happens? They then get up, they preach, and thousands more come. So, so they've continually added and added and added. But here we see that it's now starting to even multiply. The number is, we, we don't get another uh, uh, census or another uh, count, really, in the book of Acts. Because at this point, from this spot on, it's just like, there's so many people. <laughs> it's just, they're everywhere. We're bumping into Christians in villages and places that we've never even been. I don't even know how they heard about this. Right? And so people, it's, it's beginning to just multiply in incredible ways. But I also want you to notice this. Here it tells us that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. From the 120 in the upper room to all these other thousands, they've been referred to as believers. All right, but now it's saying that disciples are multiplying. And chapter 6, right here that we're reading today, is the first time that Luke uses this word in the book of Acts. Disciple does not show up until right here. He refers to the 12 as the 12 or the apostles. But here, he starts talking about disciples. And and we've seen multiple times where they've become believers. Uh, Those 3,000 on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, believers. Peter and John preaching with the lame man, chapter 4, believers. Last week, chapter 5, when believers, uh, it said believers were being added. Multitudes of men and women when they were seeing all the signs and wonders. Believers, believers, believers. And studying this week was the first time I ever saw this. And, And I had to ask myself, is there a difference between believers and disciples. Did Luke purposely change words here? Now, I'm not qualified to make that statement one way or the other, but I do think there's an important distinction here for us. All right? 
And that's what I really want to challenge us to consider today. Here's the big, here's the big question. Is there a difference between a believer and a disciple? And if so, which one am I? All right, that's going to be your challenge here as we finish, move to the, the end of this message. Is there a difference between a believer and a disciple? And if so, which one am I? Now, some would say that a, a follower, a believer, a disciple, or a Christian, they're all interchangeable terms. All right? And, and in most cases, I agree. But I also think that it's useful to see the progression that naturally happens in our faith, that's supposed to happen in our faith. Okay? Um, some might say, no, the day you received the gospel message was the day you became a disciple of Jesus. But I'm not sure that's always accurate. Okay, and, and I don't have to go very far to find an illustration for that. I just look at my own life. Right? I became a believer in Jesus as a little boy. Okay, I don't know, four, five, six years old, like a little guy. Okay, that's when I became a believer in Jesus. Now, um, I honestly don't remember it that clearly, okay? I can barely remember two weeks ago very clearly, <laughs> but I don't remember it that clearly. Um, and, and honestly, I think that probably what I remember may just be a fabrication of me wanting to remember something really hard. Do you know what I'm talking about that, guys? Actually, if you want to study your brain, it's all a fabrication of what we're remembering anyway, but that's for a different day. Um, but, but my parents... Will will attest. They will tell you if you were to ask them. Uh, you know, they remember. Yeah, we remember your little boy. We remember when you prayed the prayer. You repented of your sins. You know, uh, how much trouble can a six year old get into? Quite a bit. <laughs> um, and you repented of your sins, and you said you believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I believe that that was a genuine, real thing that happened in my life as a little kid. All right, I believed in Jesus at that point, but. I don't think I really began becoming a disciple until I was in like my late teens, early 20s, like my college years, all right? I believed that Jesus died for my sins, and I believed that I was going to go to heaven one day, but I don't think I really started growing as a disciple, becoming a, a disciple until that time. Because it was during that time that I really started doing the work of learning not just the teachings of Jesus or the stories about Jesus, because I knew those things as a little kid, right? I was the kid that was in church at like two weeks old every Sunday, right? Dad was a pastor for a while, you know? So I was there. So I knew the stories. I had heard the stuff, right? But it wasn't just learning about Jesus or the teachings of Jesus, but now how to obey him and apply those things to my life. That was the difference. Now, as a believer, my life after this life was changed, right? But as a disciple, my life in this life was changed. Do you see the difference? Okay? I no longer only believed in Jesus. I wanted to become like Jesus. I hope you see the difference there. As it turns out, as this always works this way, I'm not the only one with this idea. If you're like, hmm, I'm not sure. You're coming up with this new theology. The difference between, well, no. In fact, I came across this as studying through this. Uh, Greg Laurie wrote a book in 2012 on discipleship, and in it, he lists nine differences between believers and disciples. All right? And I, they're so good, I want to throw them up there on the screen for you to look at. Here's the difference. The believer 
looks to the cross. You got it? Believer looks to the cross. The disciple takes up his cross. The believer obeys God when it's convenient. A disciple obeys regardless of the outcome. A believer decides once. A disciple decides daily. Believers focus on eternal life, getting to heaven. But disciples focus on eternal rewards, bringing heaven now. A believer prays when things get tough. A disciple prays regardless of the circumstances. A believer sees church as a service to attend. A disciple sees himself as the church. A believer lives a saved life. A disciple lives a called life. A believer makes heaven. He gets there. But a disciple makes history. A believer receives Jesus Christ. A disciple represents Jesus Christ. Do you see the differences in this? And I believe that a lot of Christians get stuck in the believer category. Now, let's be honest here. That's a great place to be stuck. All right? If you're at least a believer, hey, you're a believer. That's great. Your eternal salvation is secure. That's, this is wonderful. All right? That's, that's good. But here's the thing, guys. That's not the life that God is calling you to. It's not. And I know that many of you in this room are disciples. But let me remind us again today that this is what we're all called to be. We're all called to be disciples. That's the journey that we're on. This is the Great Commission. He didn't say, go and make believers in me. Go and do really cool altar calls where everybody comes forward and makes a decision for Christ. That's the first step, and that's huge, and that's important. I'm not minimizing that, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, go and make disciples, people that have learned from me, that are applying these things to their lives and being transformed in their lives. It's the same idea in the book of, that the book of James addresses that is sometimes confusing for people. In James chapter 2, starting verse 17, he's talking about belief, the difference in belief and, and this level of, of discipleship. He says, faith, just by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. Do you ever think about that? Demons believe in God. They believe in Jesus. They know all about it. They believe it. Doesn't mean they're people of faith. They're not. They believe and shudder. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. And we don't want dead faith. That's not what we're, we're, we should settle for. But unfortunately, we're part of a culture right now that has emphasized the decision for Jesus, you know, the raise your hand and pray a prayer, which is, as I said, a glorious first step, but it's neglected the transformational part of becoming a disciple and walking daily in obedience with Jesus. All right, so how do we finish this then? Well, I've got three questions for you. Two of them I'm going to answer for you, and one you're going to have to answer on your own.
But the first one is this. How would then someone move from being a believer to a disciple? What's the path then? What's the subtleties? I mean, you, we've, you gave me a list of nine of those, but how do you do that? How would you move from being a believer to a disciple? Jesus told us also there in the Great Commission. He told us when he said, Go therefore, make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Here's the thing. When we begin obeying what Jesus taught, we're disciples. All right? And I know the last week we talked a lot about obedience. But it's that simple. When you actually start to obey what Jesus taught and commanded, you are becoming a disciple. You are a disciple. And you are on that path to full spiritual maturity. Now, when you first heard the gospel message, the whole thing was, well, just come and believe. Put your belief there in, in him. And which many of us did. All right? That's great. But that's not where the gospel ends. The gospel is come, make this decision and begin following him. Allow the Holy Spirit to transform your life. How does the Holy Spirit transform your life? He doesn't just force you into this new thing where you're just possessed by the Spirit and all of a sudden I'm a completely different person. That's not how it works. When we're being transformed, it's by obeying him and following him and asking him and, and choosing daily, as he says, to take up your cross daily and to follow, follow after him. You're obeying God and that's where this discipleship is actually taking place. It's simple, but it's not easy. And it's hard because sometimes we don't understand that Jesus makes clear demands on our lives. When you read what Jesus said to people, whether it's the Sermon on the Mount or whether it's the different individuals that we have captured the, the little pictures of, when you start paying attention to what Jesus said, there's lots of things that Jesus commanded and said, this is what you need to do. And for so many of us, we're like, I don't want to be told what to do. But Jesus commands these things. That's the difference. That's how we begin moving from a believer to a disciple when we obey. All right? Now, here's the question, uh, the second question, which is this. Well, all right, if, if that's it, I need to start obeying him, and I obeying what Jesus commanded, then I will become a disciple. But why would I? Why would I want to do that? If I'm already saved, if you're telling me I just believe in Jesus, that he will, in this li- after this life, he's going to take me to heaven, why do I want to become a disciple? Because, let's face it, the word disciple sounds like discipline, and I don't like that. That sounds hard. That doesn't sound fun. I've got lots of things to do in my life. You think I've got time to be a disciple? Why would I want to be a disciple? This is why, guys. Because this, being a disciple is where most of the joys of Christian living actually become a reality. When Jesus said, I came that they would have abundant life, if you're not living, experiencing that abundant life, it may be right here. I told you that last week. I said, first, take a look at your obedience. Because so many people are like, okay, I prayed the prayer. Now everything should be good, right? I should be happy, I should be joyful, all those arguments I'm having with my spouse should go away, my bank account should grow, that, that heavy diagnosis that I got for my health should go away, like I should feel good, look good, everything should be, wow. 
And I prayed the prayer and nothing happened. I didn't see stars in the sky. I didn't like feel the shakes. There's nothing. I just prayed the prayer. Now what? This Christian thing doesn't work. (laughs) No, guys. The joys of being a Christian happen as we begin walking our lives with Jesus. When we forgive, because Jesus told us to forgive, we become unburdened. When we love, because he first loved us and told us to love others, we start finding an endless supply of love. When we deny ourselves and take up our crosses, we find a new purpose in life. When we share with others as we're called to do, we start finding joy beyond ourselves. When Jesus invites us to discipleship, he's inviting us to our best life. That's why people would want to make that move from just being a believer and I've got fire insurance for hell, you know. It's so much more than that. So much more than that. You would want to be a disciple. You would want to walk with Jesus because he's going to change your life. So the third question, and I told you you have to answer this one yourself, is this. Where then are you? Where are you in your walk with God? And maybe some of you here this morning, you're what we would call as a seeker, right? You're not a believer yet. You're not a disciple yet. You're just someone who's still trying to figure this stuff out. And you're like, all right, yeah, I'll come to church and try to see if there's something in here for me. And that's, that's, that's fine. Others of you, you're like, ooh, I am definitely in the believer category. And maybe this explains some of those things that I've been wondering about all my life. I'm the believer. Others of you, you're like, I'm a disciple. And yes, I see this. I feel this. I resonate with this. Yes, that is my life. Well, what the Bible tells us to do when we're confronted with things like this, in, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, here's what, here's what is written there in Scripture. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? And here's, here's what I wanted to take some time to do um, today. If you didn't notice, we actually did less songs at the beginning of our service because I wanted to create some space at the end of the message today for us to actually have more of a response time. Um, for those of you who were at the, the fall retreat, we, we got to have one evening there where we really made space for people to just worship and pray and respond. And it was really great. And, and we've, we've wrestled with this for years of trying to figure out how do we fit that into a Sunday morning. And not every Sunday morning we can do it, but some Sunday mornings like today I think we can. And so what we've done is we're, we're going to make a little bit of space for you to examine yourself. For you to actually have some time to pray, to be with God, to be around other people that are doing the same thing as you. To just try to take a deep look at your, your soul. And I will say this, guys, the church is for all those types of people, whether you're a seeker or a believer or a disciple. All right, so this isn't about me trying to like build a hierarchy scale of, well, which ones, all the seekers we like over here, all the you know, believers here. And it's, that's not what we're trying to do. In fact, we should have all those different groups in a church. That's part of the whole spectrum of the Christian life. Right? We should have seekers. Guys, we should have non-Christians in our church every Sunday morning. 
We should have believers that are new to the faith and trying to figure this out. And we should have disciples. And in all of that, what's going to happen? The word is going to increase and the church is going to increase. That's what is in a healthy church. And I want you to take some time to examine your soul today. Because here's the thing. That shift from being a believer to a disciple. Not only is God going to make some demands on you. But there's going to be times where you're challenged in ways that are beyond what you're comfortable with. All right, And some of those parts of your life right now that might be a little rattled, might be a little damaged, might be having a hard time for you to sort out and figure out, God has something to speak into that particular part of your heart and life. And we live in such a busy culture and with such busy lives and we're so distracted by so many things, it's much easier to just say, I'm going to deal with that some other day. It's going to get figured out on its own somehow, somewhere, sometime. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to think about other things. I'm going to do other things. And eventually it'll work out. But what happens is months go by, years go by, decades go by, and you realize here I am in the same place that I was nine years ago, and it's still not fixed. It's time to deal with some of those things. And so I would encourage you guys as we make this space today to get with the Lord and start digging into those places and ask him that question. Lord, is there something that, a place of, that you're calling me to obedience that I need to do, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's hard? Maybe there's that person in your life, you're like, it's time that I finally forgive them. Maybe it's the sort of thing in your life where you're like, it is time that I deal with this, this, this issue in my marriage, in my relationship with a sibling. You know, what, wherever the pain is, wherever it is, let the Lord call you to obedience. And because here's what I also believe. When the number of disciples is multiplied greatly, as it was here in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see a powerful impact in this church community, but also in our community at large. We're all called to step into discipleship, no matter where you are. And, and we're called to continue to grow and mature and bear fruit.